Welcome to the Grasping Life Podcast. I'm your host, Lane Kimbrough. I'm in my early 20s and I'm on a journey to become the absolute best version of myself. It's inspired me to start this podcast to speak to exceptional people on all things life, business, mindset, faith, and so much more. I'm really glad that you're here. This episode is part of the Life and Finance Edition, where we hear and learn from some of the best professionals in the finance and investing fields on their unique career journeys and stories, interesting work, valuable perspectives and lessons learned, life outside of work, and everything in between. Thanks for joining us. In this episode of the Grasping Life podcast, I had the pleasure of recording Sabrina Bailey. Sabrina was recognized as a Distinguished Investment Professional of the Year by Women Investment Professionals in 2017 and 40 Under 40 by Crane Chicago School of Business in 2016. She graduated from George Fox University in the year 2000 and is currently the Senior Vice President slash Head of Digital Investment Advice for Northern Trust Asset Management, a very well-established firm in Chicago. During the podcast, we discuss her career path, how her faith and values have grounded her, being a leader in finance, how she prioritizes her time outside of work, being involved in many nonprofits, and much more. I hope you enjoy. Different paths in life. We, my brother went into private equity, which is an investment mm-hmm. field like myself. My sister's a fifth grade teacher. Um, and then we grew up very close to family. So all of our family is still in Oregon and Washington, with the exception of myself and my brother, who are in, he's in California and I'm here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And so yeah. kind of we'll skip a little bit, but so to explain kind of what you're doing now in your role at Northern Trust. Yes, I am heading up our digital platform business for investments called Emotomy. And the purpose of Emotomy is actually to bring together the combination of human intellect through financial advisors mm-hmm. and the power of technology to better serve clients. Wow. Especially with how much yeah. everything's advancing, I'm sure that's a very complex role and but very important for the industry that we're in. It is. And I think too often people see the role as either or either technology or human connection. Mm. And we truly believe that in the financial space, there has to be the combination of the two to walk people through their life journey as it relates to finances. Mm, that's fantastic. So I just have to ask, you know, that little girl that you're explaining, is, was this the dream when you were growing up? Was to be working in finance like this? No, it <laughs> was not. I did not know what I wanted to do. And actually, I had never heard of a stock or a bond until I went to university. And that was the first time I had actually heard about investments and what they were for and fell into the investment space through my internship my senior year at George mm-hmm. Fox. Mm, that's great. But so, I mean, at George Fox, too, you didn't even study finance. I did not. I studied business economics. Mm. And when I moved into the investment space, I found it intriguing just to understand how people were using the portfolios, how it tied to the overall economics courses I took, but then also took some statistics. So that combination of the statistical analysis Mm -hmm. plus the reach economically and geography from a geography perspective was really intriguing. Totally. Yeah. You kind of have that macro perspective, but as well as how it's affecting everyone on the ground. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So walk me through you. There's about five more years right after school, right? And I couldn't yes. find anything. What did you do right after school? <laughs> yes. I went, started at a small investment consulting firm mm-hmm. where I 
literally just entered numbers into a computer. So I was a data analyst. That Mm -hmm. job taught me a lot about work ethic and what it means to graduate from college and then what your first career looks like and how much experience plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. So over that first five years, I started just entering data, binding reports before we could send them via PDF. And then moved into manager research, researching different investment managers that select stocks for investors so that investors don't have to select individual stocks or bonds themselves. Mm-hmm. And then led, that led to managing a team and researching specifically managers who invested outside of the U.S. Mm, that's very interesting. So slowly you, you kind of made your way into the finance and into managing investments. Yeah, yes. that's great. And so then in the middle of all that and kind of at the end of that, you also went back to George Fox to get your MBA, but not in finance, but in organizational leadership. So just, I would love to just kind of hear, walk me through why, why did you make that decision? Yeah, and working for an investment consulting firm is different than working from an investment management firm and that you have to understand both the pure investing side and why stocks or bonds are selected, how they're reviewed, the fundamentals of the company, so the true financial analysis, and how the clients behaviorally react to those investments. I happened to start my career right as the tech cycle was ending, and we had the tech crash three months in. (laughs) That taught me a lot about behavior of clients, fear of the markets, and so it was really a combination of those that led me back to organizational leadership because I knew you could fun- learn the fundamentals of investing. Mm-hmm. The question was, how do you relate to those CEOs and head of human resources that are struggling with the financial portfolios they mm-hmm. offer to cl- their clients or their uh, employees? Mm-hmm. How do you bring comfort in the midst of that turmoil? Mm-hmm. Um, as I was doing that, we hit the housing crisis, 2008 financial crisis, which then I went through with clients and also had the opportunity to take what I learned from an organizational leadership perspective to communicate to the leaders of those organizations mm-hmm. and really embed in them um, the sense of comfort and safety, even though the investment markets themselves were in chaos at the time. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So it's kind of taking that human element and then also incorporating it with yes. all the finance and technical analysis and everything like yes. that. Yes. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, so I thought you kind of had, we met at George Fox and you had an interesting story about how you've kept moving up in your career. And so I would just yes. love to hear, you know, after your MBA, what did that look like? And what were a few stories that really stood out to you? Yes, there were. It was a different path, I would say, than most of my peers followed, which was I never had a line of sight into exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. I knew that I loved to learn, and intellectual curiosity really drove me. And if things got too stable, I got bored. Mm. So it was a matter of understanding then what opportunities arose. Part of that was creating my own opportunities, recognizing Mm your challenges within an organization that weren't being addressed. And regardless of whether it was quote unquote, my job or not really taking those on and trying to help the organization forward as a whole. A big part of it though, was turning down opportunities that Mm. provided greater financial benefit at the time. In one case early in my career, I was about four years in uh, and I was offered a job that paid five times more than I was making in base salary, that's a hard decision, uh, especially early in your career. I also knew, though, that the things I was passionate about, the intellectual curiosity, 
working directly with clients weren't available in that role. And so I had to make a really tough decision for both myself and my family to pass it up. Mm. And at the same time, there have been roles that have come along that have been lateral moves and yet lateral moves that exposed me to contacts that I hadn't met before in the industry areas I hadn't been exposed to from an intellectual curiosity perspective. And by following those areas, um, which were most often the areas other people didn't want to fall into. So turnaround Mm. situations, for example, Mm. and leading companies out of turnarounds or divisions out of turnarounds, taking on new endeavors like digital, uh, where no one at the bank had been that direction before from a pure investment standpoint and being willing to take the risk to lead into those and follow them through uh, has been how my career has progressed. So I read, there's a book called why greatness can't be planned. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite books by Kenneth Stanley. And the premise of the book is you can see one stepping stone out, which should be your objectives. But if you're trying to cross a foggy Creek and you try to continue to just jump straight forward to your goal, you actually don't know when the rocks end. You don't know if the rocks veer off another direction because you can't see that far in the future yet. It's very similar with a career. We can all have set objectives and objectives are important for their short-term goals, but nobody set out to invent the computer. They invented a vacuum tube that ended up being the computer. Mm. And if they would have said, I want to invent a computer, getting from point A to point B would have been too challenging because they Mm. didn't see there was a point that was in between the two that was off to the side that actually led to the development of the computer. So in that way, as you think about career, as you think about how to progress in career, I really encourage people, especially now with how fast things are changing, to look one point ahead, but then also know what engages and motivates you. Like I Mm. said, I love turnarounds. I like disruption. I like intellectual curiosity, continuously learning. Those are the things that drive me. There are other people who thrive in stability, who thrive in knowing what they're doing every day and leading that organization from an individual performance perspective. Those individuals are just as critical to any organization as people with my personality. Because if you have too many of me, you end up with a chaotic organization (laughs) that isn't stable enough for most people to join. But if if you don't have that, you can't be disruptive. If you end up with too much of the stability, you actually can't be disruptive enough to maintain that competitive nature in the future. Mm. And so I'd say that my other advice is people should really understand who they are, Mm. what motivates and drives them, and follow that path. Because we all spend too much time in our job to hate what we're doing. (laughs) That's so true. That's so true. I mean, I just hear you talk about that and you're very grounded and your values and you're very aware and you know, you just know yourself, like you said. And so I think, you know, it's awareness has kind of become a buzzword a little bit. Right. And just maybe could you talk, how did you become aware? Like, were there things that you did? Okay. Here, I'll tell you a funny story about George Fox that started off. My husband who I met at George Fox Mm -hmm. was at that point in the psychology program. Mm -hmm. And on our second date had me take three personality profiles (laughs) under the guise that he wanted to get to know me better so we could communicate more effectively. Mm. Now, to be fair, I took it and obviously stuck around. That was the stage though, that really led me to start to understand who I am. And I'd Mm. say as I progressed in my career, 
the biggest factor to understanding what truly drives me personally uh, and what I'm passionate about has been the feedback I've had from other people. And that feedback has not always been easy. So the number of times I've had feedback to slow down, not everyone can keep up. You're going way too fast and we know you're excited, but the reality is you have other people who you need to bring along. Mm. And it's those types of situations that really help you understand, but you have to be willing to learn, to Mm. listen to that feedback, and then also operate out of your mode of strength at times. Um, In particular now, you know, I, I have a team that, that I work for of 22 people. Those 22 people have completely different personalities. I am going to be too fast for some of them. And I need them to feel comfortable and confident stepping up and saying, time out. We need you to slow down, back up. Or, hey, you're not thinking about this in the right way. So I'd also say that part of it is just continuously learning about yourself, but then also continuously truly listening to people and hearing. Mm. Their feedback will help guide that direction as well. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, you just, you know, it, it just, it screams empathy, right? And just being able to listen yes. to someone and relate to, you know, how they're feeling and also having that awareness to bring back to, you know, how can we really produce the best thing for the team and us moving forward? And right, it's not, it's not just you and especially leading the way that you have and the more positions you have stepped up to in your career. I mean, it's just such a powerful, just, you know, awareness and realization. Yes. Yeah. I think it's the combination of empathy, but almost more importantly, humility Mm. and being willing to admit when you're wrong, Mm. being willing to admit that you don't know everything early on in my career. That was the biggest struggle for me personally uh, and being fully transparent. And I think it is for a lot of people just understanding what we do know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I knew a lot more than I actually did. Mm-hmm. And as I've progressed in my career, I've learned to say, you know, I actually don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what this means. I don't know what it means to the business. Having that humility creates mm-hmm. a personal relationship with the team of people you're working with so mm-hmm. that you're on a human level. And that also drives engagement. People want to work with people. Mm-hmm. And too many times leaders feel like, I've heard this multiple times in my career, well, that's just soft skills. Mm -hmm. And that soft stuff doesn't really matter. Um, In times like this, where our team is now work from home, soft skills matter more than anything because there's not that in-person connection. Mm -hmm. There's not the face-to-face. There's not the day-to-day joking in the office. So how do you connect and be human with the people you're working with because life is happening all around us and we have to share that life. So admittedly, you I'll get distracted by the kids or somebody else will get distracted and it's okay. Or mm-hmm. it's okay to start a call and say, Hey, I know you have a three and five year old at home right now and you're trying to work full time. So guess what? It doesn't matter if they're loud. If we hear them, we hear them. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal. Um, and really that empathy combined with that humility leads to engagement by other people. Mm. The only reason people do more than they need to do for their day-to-day role is because they're behind your values and beliefs. It has nothing Mm. to do with a company. Mm. It has everything to do with what you value. And if their values align with yours, 
whatever those values are, then people are more committed and give more and are more engaged than any company can ever get to, regardless of pay or status or leveling. Mm. That's so interesting. So I, I just, I'm curious, how do you communicate those values? Is it face to face? Is it, you know, do you have a whiteboard up that just has all of them? I'm just, I'm just curious. It's a good question. We do. Well, we have a whiteboard up with the values. Our values align with our organization's values, Mm -hmm. curiosity, humility, perseverance, competence, uh, and that in diversity more so though, we have a belief about what our business is. bringing the technology that provides the foundation for advisors to have that human touch with clients to allow that. Mm. So if that's what we're meant to do, then our developers every day should wake up knowing that each piece of code they put into our technology platform drives people having access to affordable, high-quality investment advice. And if we can all rally around that, regardless of your size of savings pool that you have to invest, then we can all be moving in the same direction. It helps us reset when we may or may not agree on a direction to head. Okay, well, is it is it helping us achieve that bigger belief or value? And that's written in everything. It's a reminder in every meeting and all documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say now it's a combination of that and the softer skills. Mm-hmm. Checking in on a daily basis with new individuals on the team that I Mm. haven't directly talked to for the last week, regardless of reporting structure, Mm. getting an understanding of what are their fears. And it doesn't matter to me if it's, I'm trying to juggle homeschooling my kids and work from home or what's happening in the economy. Is that going to affect us? Um, Mm. Are we at risk of losing our jobs? We see our friends losing their jobs. Um, But really having those transparent one-on-one conversations Mm. to understand where people are at Um, And then we instituted a weekly spirit award. So every week the team nominates an individual for the spirit, Emotomy spirit award. And that award is given to the team member who's shown our key value during that week with the story behind how they displayed that core value that we Mm. live by. Uh, Mm. And so really just highlighting the fact that we're all in this together. Mm. That's fantastic. Yeah. I just, I hear you talking right now and it's just so interesting that, you know, to get where you've been and all the experiences you've had, a lot of it is so relational, right? And it's, you, you don't think as much about, obviously it's very important to be, you know, competent in finance, but it's yeah. not, it's not that only, you know, it's incorporating both into creating, yeah. you know, a great team and a successful career, all that kind of stuff. And I'd even, even the opportunity, great observation, even the opportunities I've been given are relational. Mm. Um, and it's an often overlooked component of a way to stand out within the industry and within an organization in part because it takes time and it mm. takes purposeful time. So I call it intentional informalities where you are intentionally informal with someone. Mm. And it's part of it is every contact in the industry, industries regardless of whether you go into healthcare or finance, there are all the technical skills everybody has to know. Mm-hmm. But then if you surround that by getting to know people and asking, how can I help you? What's mm-hmm. the one thing I could do today that would help you move where you're headed? And I can't tell you how many times you, you, 
help someone out because typically people will say, oh, well, if you could just introduce me to this one other person, mm. you can make that introduction. The, the fruits of that doesn't necessarily come around immediately, but what you see is as you build those relationships throughout the industry, the fruits of that absolutely come around yeah. time and time and time again where individuals are then helping you or you they know someone you need to know because you're in a specific place. Um, and then importantly, right, as we all work for organizations, we get stuck in our, I would say my observation is in the workplaces, people get really stuck in the function they have in a business, whether mm -hmm. that business is 50 people or 20,000 people. When we're stuck in our own function and not focused on the greater good of the organization, that's when the organization really suffers. And mm. so those relationships outside help you understand the pain points others in the organization are facing. Mm. And there are ways that we can all help each other get through those challenges. Maybe we've faced similar challenges before. Maybe we haven't, but we may know someone who has. Um, and so those relationships are a really, really important part to any role. Um, they also lead to you being more successful at your role because there will absolutely be times in everybody's career where they don't have the right resources, the right answer, mm. uh, the right path. And mm. you can always go back to that network and find it. Mm. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So I have to ask you, just out of a prioritization, how do you think yeah. of, do you think of relationships as like, not a checklist, but something that you know, you need to make time for each day? Is it a, you know, as they come? What's kind of your really prioritization when it comes to that? Yes, I would say early in my career working at smaller companies, it was really, I'll call the morning walk around, checking mm. in, saying hi, touching base. Mm. Um, and and just to full, fully transparent, I'm an introvert by nature. Mm. That does not come naturally to me. So yes, mm -hmm. some of it was intentional and that's why I called it intentional informality was because mm -hmm. it had to be intentional. As my per career has progressed, I've realized that there's no reason not to have lunch with somebody new every day. Everybody mm -hmm. has to eat. Most people aren't getting pulled into meetings at that time. And it's been a great way to connect with a ton of people in just having a lunch meeting um, or if I can't have a lunch meeting because they don't happen to work in the same state or sometimes the same country, it's, <laughs> hey, can, <laughs> I have friends all over the world now, but hey, you know, could we have a call on my way home on the train at night while you're heading into work in Australia, for example? And I just want to connect and hear how things are. What challenges are you facing? What are you doing? So it is, you have to be purposeful because mm. absolutely without a doubt, the day-to-day -day demands of anybody's job, regardless of where you're at in organization, will always take over mm. the relationships because it's what's pressing. It's what feels like it matters the most at that point in time. And with full transparency, there are times that I'm much better at this than others. Mm. And there are times where I'll go weeks without doing anything because I just get head down and I think I'm busy and I have all these other things to do. And this crisis over here and it it's purposely stepping back from that every once in a while and resetting mm -hmm. what's really important because that lunch, while it may feel like it's not accomplishing my goal, that individual may say something that actually helps me solve a problem that I didn't mm -hmm. know they had the mm -hmm. answer to. Um, so it's 
it will be an ebb and flow over time for sure. Yeah. I love that. So it's not just the relationship, right? It's, you're just such a curious person. You have this desire to learn that you in any situation, right? I mean, I can see you, you know, talking to anyone and just being able to learn from them or any situation, any meeting, that's just what, that's just your mindset. And I think that's such, such a beautiful thing, honestly. Yeah. I got to ask, where did that, has it, has, have you always been that way or did that kind of develop as you grew? Yeah, I've always been that way. It drove my parents crazy. (laughs) I have, and honestly, it drove my teachers crazy growing up in a small town because I was never okay with it. The answer is the answer because it's the answer. Mm. I wanted to know, well, why? Tell me more Mm. behind that. Okay, well, if this author wrote this book in the 1500s, did they write what the book was really supposed to be about? How do you know that's what they intended? How do you know it's not what they intended? And I found that for people who are willing to answer those questions, I just gained so much, Mm. um, both so much knowledge, but then respect for other people too, knowing how much other people know and getting, gaining that greater perspective actually helps you solve so many more problems than you could solve because it's almost as if putting a puzzle piece together, each time Mm. you gain that additional knowledge, it may sit there and like your puzzle pieces scattered across the table but then all of a sudden something clicks and I don't know if you do puzzles, but we love doing puzzles. So then if something clicks and you can start seeing the patterns, mm-hmm. it all comes together mm-hmm. extremely quickly. And you don't even know in some cases they're puzzle pieces you needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would say it drove people crazy at the beginning of my career. The one thing to be careful about with curiosity is it can come across as questioning somebody's authority mm-hmm when not combined with humility. Mm. And that is something that I have had to work on time and time again, because I don't intend for it to come across that way. But because I'm not questioning the person, I'm really just curious. And there's a way Mm. to be curious and have that curiosity flow through in a manner that it's not offensive. Mm. That takes time and it takes skill. And I'd say I still don't get it perfect all the time Mm. because I just want to know, well, well, why, why is it always been done that way? Just because it's always been done that way. Should we have to do it that way? Um, and then there are times where I have to say, you know what, in this situation, because of where we're at, that stability is critical. Mm. And regardless of whether I agree or disagree with why we need to do it that way, or should we be doing it the way it's always been done? There are very specific cases where that that is absolutely foundational to continuing to move forward. Because if you change everything at once, it's too much. So yes, intellectual curiosity is definitely something that I've always been. That's so interesting. To. So I wanted to, I wanted to highlight something you mentioned. So I was reading online, there was an article, you won an award a few years ago, the Distinguished yes. Woman Investment Professional Award. So congratulations yes. first off. And then Thank also you. something that just really resonated with me, and we've talked about it even in this call, but you say, I am human. And that was your advice when you gave your speech. Can you just speak on that a little bit, please? Yes. The further people move up within an organization, the less people recognize they're humans. Mm. And one unique thing, and I actually have a funny story about it. One unique thing about me is that 
I've always seen everybody as human. So I don't Mm -hmm. care if you're the CEO of a 20,000 person firm or not, you're just another person. And yes, you lead the organization unless you have a, and yes, you have a big role and I absolutely respect it. But if I have something I need to talk to you about, then I'll call you just like I would call anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's helped build that relationship piece of it. The other component though, is recognizing that Critically, when people walk in the door, they walk in as a whole person. Mm. They don't walk in as a technical analyst. They don't walk in as a stock picker. They don't walk in as a doctor. They walk in as a whole person. And Mm. that whole person includes everything that's going on outside the office, everything that's going on inside the office, everything that's going on with family. And too oftentimes, if you know, if we walk in as a full human and we have chaos going on in our outside life that no one at work can see, and so we're short in a meeting, people automatically judge that individual mm. versus saying, you know what, I wonder if there is something else going on. Mm. So that recognition that we were all, were all going to go through periods of ups and downs, periods where we're more patient than not, um, and periods where we're not patient at all. And having that um, empathy for people, but then also having the willingness to say, you know what, they may have something else going on in their life that we just don't know about and they're not comfortable sharing and allowing for people to be people, allowing for people to make mistakes and then just moving on um, and recognizing it. It's part of who we are as people. Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. such a unique perspective. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanna I wanna highlight also something that you spoke about earlier. So when you were you turned down a job that was five times as much pay, <laughs> yes. and one of the reasons you talked about was doing what's best for your family. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, you know, as someone going into finance and being around people that are in finance, sometimes it's overlooked that you actually have a life outside of finance. <laughs> Sometimes, right? And it sounds, I mean, it's like laughable, right? But it's, it is. I've seen it so much and I'm already, you know, I'm already seeing it. And so can you just talk maybe specifically with that scenario, like what was going through your mind? What were you thinking about with your family and how did that come about? Yeah, it, it was at that point in time, the job also required a lot of travel, Mm. But not only did it require travel, it would require us to relocate where there was no family, no Mm -hmm. friends. So essentially, I'd be leaving my husband, two toddlers, traveling over 50% of the time and moving them someplace we knew nobody else. Mm -hmm. Now, have I done that since? Yes. However, (laughs) it was really about does, if we're going to make that sacrifice, is the role I'm moving into something I'm passionate about, Mm. or is it just the lure of money? And Mm. um, I, when I was 19, had the opportunity to nanny in Greenwich, Connecticut Mm. for a family and coming from small town, Oregon, growing up in a very tiny house with five of us and moving to a very, very large home in the heart of Greenwich taught me one important lesson at 19. And that was that the richest of people in the U.S. are sometimes the least happy. And that regardless of how much money they made, how much they were doing, how much they gave up in life, running in this rat race, they they never had enough because they mm-hmm. were always looking up to that next person saying, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. 
And it helps set perspective on money. If money doesn't make you happy, then really following what you're passionate about is an important component of that. And I would say I've done, my husband and I have done a good job of making all of those decisions together too, because each decision that's made, um, you say that finance, sometimes there's not a life and you're right. I have worked 120 hour weeks and I consistently work at least 60 hour weeks. Mm-hmm. I've never worked less than that. There's, uh, and I was horrible at the beginning of my career, actually balancing what my family needed versus how much there was a pull to that corporate mm-hmm. environment. And what I will tell you is it didn't necessarily get me any further. What I have learned for myself personally, I think everybody has to figure this out is what are you going to consider sacred? So for us, because my husband's a pastor now, Saturdays is our day. It is our Everybody knows if you need me, because somebody's dying, you can send me a text. Otherwise, I'm on Friday night, I'm on Sunday morning, but Mm. Saturday is our day. Mm. And I am signed off of work. And in the financial industry in particular, That doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, if you don't do it, then people will creep in because it's a digital society. However, people, going back to the I am human, actually, it sets a really great uh, role model for everybody you're working with because Mm -hmm. everybody respects it. Most people wish they'd have the ability or willingness to do it. They just haven't Mm -hmm. taken the step yet. And it's created, even in our digital space, where we're 24-7, the tech team has to be on all the time. We have a rhythm now as a team where we know when individuals are on or off. We know what their schedules are. We know when they need that family time and when they're going to be pulled away. And it's respected. And what you find is the rest of the team, because they need it too, ends up filling in those gaps. Um, So That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel like... I mean, I'm sure we've all made mistakes, right? So maybe, (laughs) (laughs) so you're a very vulnerable person. I appreciate that so much. And if you're willing, would you mind talking about maybe a few mistakes that have come through your career that have impacted maybe your family or your life or the things, other things that you cared about? Yeah, I'd say, well, the biggest mistake early in my career was lacking that humility. And just being willing to not only listen to the words that people were saying, but hear what they were saying and take that feedback. Um, Even if that feedback hit me right away as negative, being willing to digest it later on. Mm -hmm. So that um, I can tell you time and time again, I had folks tell me, especially early in my career, you you need to just slow down and recognize that we're trying to teach you something and you're not teachable if you keep wanting to move to the next thing. Mm. And I would continuously try to move to the next thing. And then I would make stupid mistakes in client reports, which then anyway, blood to our clients and it was not good. So that's one of my key mistakes was not having that humility up front and Mm. just recognizing that in order to be teachable, you have to be open. Mm. Um, uh, The biggest mistake I've made with my family is thinking that being available 24-7, seven days a week was best for me and best for the organization and best Mm. for where we needed to go as a family when it was actually not good for any of it. Mm. 
it wasn't healthy for myself because I didn't have time to reset. I became less creative. I had less patience. Um, and then it created, you know, a knock on effect of if you're not patient with people you're working with, your teams, your clients, then clearly there's the relational effects that that has. Mm -hmm. And then more importantly, my family wasn't getting the best of me. So ultimately, by trying to be the best for everybody, nobody actually got the best. Mm. And that's where I really had to, going back to, find that balance. So what did I need to be my best for each of those places? Mm. Um, At one point in my career, I traveled 90% of the time. So in an 18-month period, I was home three days in a row once. Wow. And trying to balance that and balance family. Um, you know, one of my key mistakes there was not staying in contact enough, not mm-hmm. when you're on the road, you can work 24 seven cause there's no one else with you mm-hmm. and you're lonely, but that sets a really bad precedent because then the family didn't hear from me enough. I was constantly working. I wasn't taking breaks. Uh, and so then again, that just leads back into that lack of creativity, lack mm-hmm. of perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, those would be the biggest mistakes I've made in my career. Mm. So it almost sounds like the more you worked, sometimes the less effective it was. Not oh, only in work, but yeah, yes. outside too. Yeah. I am 100% positive. The more you work, the less effective you are. Mm. And even now, um, if we think about you know, it, the acquisition of the company I run now, there were weeks where it's 100-hour weeks. And there are times when, depending on what role you're at in an organization that will be necessary, it's not sustainable. And at the end of that period, if you're really conscious about how you're reacting to things, both at home and both at work and with friends or family, you'll see that decline happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just so critical to be able to pull back out of it. So one of the things I started doing, because I've had a number of these periods in my career, is after those long stretches of a few weeks of 100 hours plus, taking a day off. Just as a vacation day to to reset, to really take a step back, shut it down, and start back the next day. Mm. And that's been extremely helpful. And I wish I had done that earlier in my career. Mm. So I just got to ask, what does that yeah. reset day look like? Is it just you doing nothing? Is it hanging out with your family? Is it journaling, reflecting? What does that look like? Yeah. You typically, it depends on the time of year. If the girls are on summer break, because our girls are both in high school now, if they're on summer break, it was a day with a family. Mm. Um, and almost always it includes outdoor activity, mm. running, biking, hiking, rock climbing, going on trails, something outdoors. And then if the girls are in school, typically, okay, I, re- I really love to organize stuff. <laughs> so which I never get the opportunity to do. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it's, if Jeff's working and the girls are at school, I'll just pick a place in the house to organize only because I just really love doing it. So while Mm -hmm. most people find it to be a chore, it's mindless Mm -hmm. and it helps me reset. And then Mm -hmm. absolutely when the family's home, it's about family. And we actually don't watch much TV. Mm -hmm. We don't watch any TV during the week. We are inventing a card game right now that we're hoping to publish we play board games, we work on puzzles, we create um, d- different strategic initiatives for each of us, we debate different topics. So we tend to spend a lot of time as a family doing things that are engaging with one another because mm-hmm. our time is so limited. That's fantastic. I love that. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. 
So cool. So I want to lead now. So you're in Chicago. Yes. Right. And so how, how is that being away from home from where you grew up? Well, we definitely, it's, it's both and, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm a big believer in perspective. Chicago offers a lot of opportunity that Oregon would not have mm-hmm. and that even Seattle does not in the finance industry. I enjoy the opportunity. I actually really enjoy the culture of the Midwest mm-hmm. and the transparency and the authenticity and the friendliness of people here. Mm-hmm. What I miss about the Pacific Northwest is absolutely being closer to my family. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, I have two grandmothers who are still around. And mm-hmm. so not being able to see them on the weekends is tough. And then outdoor activity. So in Oregon, Washington, you can be outside all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much in Chicago and there's no mountain biking, downhill snow skiing, trail riding, rock climbing. It's all hours and hours away. Mm-hmm. So we miss that outdoor time mm-hmm. most of all. Mm-hmm. I bet. Yeah. I can imagine. So I want to highlight on two things kind of to finish this yeah. off here. So the first that I forgot to ask about and I'll edit back in, but okay. so talk me through why the asset management industry yeah. You know, like why, why, why that in finance? I started on the investment consulting side mm-hmm. and worked on the investment consulting side for um, consulting firms that were giving advice on asset pools, which used asset managers. So if you can think about any company's 401k plan, pension plans that still exist, uh, we used to work on those. And I loved the consulting side. It was all about understanding the needs or problem statements of the client and solving for those. Moving to the asset management side, when I came to Northern Trust, it was really to truly, you know, driven by intellectual curiosity. I'd never worked on the asset management side. So while we'd hired asset managers for portfolios for clients, I'd never spent time understanding what's the trading capability, what are the trading capabilities like, what are the intricacies around the portfolios how do asset management firms go about deciding which portfolios their clients need? And how does that then translate back into what I did as a consultant? Mm. And it was really in that light. It also gave me the opportunity to work on global Mm -hmm. retirement programs, which I had not worked globally. And I absolutely loved it. I have friends around the world now that I will be friends with for my life. Mm. And just understanding the intricacies of investing across the globe is fascinating Mm. because investing in the UK is extremely different than investing in Australia, which is Mm. very different than investing in Asia, which is even different than investing in the US and all the regulatory environment around that. Um, And then I had the opportunity, of course, to move in the digital space, which I took. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's so cool. So what would it take for me you know, technical finance aspect to do your job or it will be in a role similar to yours? A very strong understanding of investment portfolios. Mm. And what I mean by that is understanding, well, particular now, how markets behave, Mm -hmm. how that impacts portfolios. When Mm. any portfolio of stocks or bonds is built based on Um, whether it's quantitative or not, it's based on a philosophy of investing. Mm. And you have to understand that philosophy in order to translate to the clients what's happening in their accounts and why it matters. For example, 
in this market environment, if we had a high growth portfolio that we were running that was targeting only technology securities and only the highest growth of those securities, and that portfolio was down only 5% versus 28% against the market, Mm -hmm. we'd have to question why. Is that Mm -hmm. portfolio really doing what it's meant to do, even though it's performed better? And it's the same on the flip side. So it's truly having that in-depth expertise. On the technology side, it's being able to translate that in terms that the technology team can understand so they can Mm. implement the code needed Mm. to both build the portfolios, but then ultimately build a platform for advisors to use. Mm. And so part of that is learning the technology language. When I took this role, I watched more YouTube videos than I can count by Google and Amazon and Facebook and Spotify just to understand what is the technology process? What is the terminology they're using? How do they think about things like architecture? It was a whole new language because I grew up on the investment side. Totally. But then bringing that understanding to the technology side too, understanding that what is simple to me on the investment side is a new language for them. And how do I translate that language in a way that they understand it? Mm, that's so it's great. the combination of that investment and technical knowledge. Yeah, it's communication again, right? It's so yes. key. No, yes. it's awesome. And also the humility to say, I don't know anything about technology, right? I mean, yes. I look, and yep. not many, but it's, you know, more and more in the world we're living in, especially finance, you know, it's the finance side as well as the technology side. And they're really becoming one. Yeah, and I in, in the future, you're going to have to know both because mm-hmm. investment portfolios are being built with technology now, mm-hmm. which is going to require a knowledge of coding. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have a knowledge of coding, even if you have a knowledge of the financial algorithms, how do you know the right algorithms are injected mm-hmm. into the code so that the code is doing what you think it's going to do when mm-hmm. you're investing your portfolio? Mm-hmm. And if you look back, if we think the, the iPhone only came about less than a year before our last financial crisis. Mm, that's true. Wow. That, I mean, it was a whole different world of investing back then. We were still, I've only been in my career a little over 20 years. We were still looking up investments in the newspaper every morning mm. when I started. So if you fast forward at the change that's happened, what we do know for a fact is you're going to have to know that technology going forward. And then implement, be able to implement and speak that language going forward. So it's going to be the financial fundamentals plus the technology fundamentals that really drive the asset management business mm. in the future. That's so interesting. Yeah. And we've talked about this also, but the fact that Northern Trust is such an established company and they, they've been around for over 100 years. And yes. so they've seen, you know, I mean, the last 100 years, just imagine how much it's changed. And so how has it been working for a company that, is so established and has been around for so long? It, I absolutely love working for a company that's this established that also has the willingness to look at transformation. Mm. The reason they've been around for 130 years is because they've been willing to transform themselves. Mm. They've been willing to look at the new technologies and the bank was around before the Great Depression. And so as they've looked at those technologies over the years, Um, The one thing Northern Trust has done consistently well is understand what those technologies are and make investments in them. Uh Northern will never be the fastest company, Mm. but they will be thoughtful. And so the benefit of working at an organization that's been around for so long is that 
They've also seen them pros and cons of moving into transformation too quickly or too slowly. Mm -hmm. And there is a fine balance there. And for some of us who um, have grown up in an age where transformation is happening continuously, there's also from a financial perspective, uh, the that you have to understand how capital is being spent at an organization for your shareholders. Mm -hmm. Is that the best use of capital given what else is happening at the mm -hmm. bank? And they've done an excellent job historically understanding where to invest and when to invest to have the highest return on that capital mm -hmm. for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. That's very fascinating. Yeah, and I'm always just curious because, you know, yeah, I think that's great. Thank you. And then, yeah. so I want to get back to, so you're living in Chicago and yeah you work at least 60 hours a week, you have a family of two daughters, but you're also very involved in the nonprofit space and yes. you volunteer your time a lot. Yes. Can you just talk, I mean, where do you find time for it? Part of our time is because we don't watch TV during the week. Mm. So we do a lot of work during the week. And then we actually don't watch much on the weekend either. I'm a big believer in having downtime and though balancing it with giving back. And it happens to be a passion of ours to serve those in need. So when we think about you know the trade-off between watching a movie and going to Roseland, which is in South Chicago, to work in a neighborhood where most families have never seen a fresh fruit or vegetable, mm. um, I will tell you that some days it's harder than others to make the decision to go because you want to just be still not do anything, do something mindless. But once you're there, the amount of energy it fills you with is incredible mm. um, because you're giving back to a community that doesn't have anything. And that's also why we actually do work in Africa and just understanding the cultural differences and the needs and being able to provide. Um, so if you think about all the work I do and why do I work 60 hours a week and why have I done this to <clears throat> provide for the family. There's more than just providing for the family. It's really how do we utilize what we've been blessed with to mm. really help those who are disadvantaged? Mm. And, and then how do we think about <clears throat> giving them not a handout because too often there's a handout versus a hand up, which is mm. teaching them really how to manage finances, teaching them how to be curious, teaching them how to get out of the situations they're in or what paths might be available. Mm. Providing them, instead of providing a handout, providing them with a job they can do that affords them the ability to buy something small. Having, a, you know, in Roseland specifically with the woman we work with, having a, a center where they can buy clothes, but those mm. clothes are a dollar each. But it still mm. teaches the benefit and the dignity of their paying for their family. They're providing for their family. It's not just a handout. And that dignity comes with empowerment that is found time and time again in research to help people out of their situations mm. because it doesn't seem hopeless anymore. They're being empowered to make a choice to provide for family and move them mm. um, up and out of where they're at. That's so powerful. And it just, so, I can tell it just, you're speaking from the heart I right there. It. Yeah. Yes. And it just, it goes back to your values and something we haven't really talked about, but your faith. Do yes. you feel like this stems out of your faith or is this just a part of your life and it's who you are? It's both. And mm. a, a large part of it, I would say stems out of my faith. When I was growing up, 
uh, and I don't even remember what age I was at, but my dad was in industrial sales. So he was laid off on a number of occasions. And I remember, and it must've been late elementary, early middle school. I remember one time when he was laid off and we really didn't have much in the house to eat. In particular, when you're a young kid and you really want whatever it is, Oreo cookies. Um, and I will never forget the day that our neighbors dropped off just bags of food. Mm. And, and there was fresh fruit, which we hadn't had for weeks. There were donuts, powdered sugar donuts of all the things I remember that we hadn't had. There was fresh bread. That made a lasting impact on me that never left because they didn't have to bring the food over. My parents absolutely would have never asked for anything. It's just who they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I could see the impact it had on me. I, clearly, I've never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. And then for that family, though, it was such a simple act. It mm -hmm. cost them nothing except a little bit of time and a little mm -hmm. bit of money to truly impact a person's life. And that impact plus my faith um, and just understanding even – so my faith drives me to understand and respect humanity. Mm -hmm. If we are all made in God's image, then we should be treating everybody as if they're made in God's image. Mm. And my faith background as a Christian isn't too dissimilar from many others' faith backgrounds. And we're called to serve the poor. We're called to serve the widows. We're called to serve the homeless. And too often that pride and arrogance gets in the way. Mm. And, in, and part of that is the assumption that, well, I don't have much to give, so it won't mean anything. Mm. But the reality is, as little as you have could mean something so much more for the person you're touching and generate a response that goes viral. Mm. And, and though you can't talk about it unless you actually do it. So mm. how then do you live out those values? How do, you, how do we teach our girls that they are blessed beyond a belief in what they have day to day and that there are others that are 45 minutes away that are only in the situation they're in because they were born there. They, they don't have anything to do with that. They're small kids. And so then how can you touch their lives? How do, how do we truly help them? Um, I would say the other component of it is that, yes, we are rich in a lot of things. We overlook how rich some people are because we assume riches relate to possessions mm. or financial riches. And when we go to places like Sierra Leone, where there is unspeakable joy in villages with no running water, no power, no mirrors, no writing utensils, no paper, I mean, you name it, people die of cavities, malaria, and yet this unspeakable joy, it's because they are rich in so many things mm. that we don't have. They're rich in community. They're rich in love for one another. And those riches provide hope that's beyond what our financial riches can ever provide. And, and just having that perspective, it becomes addictive going because it resets your perspective on as bad as things seem. But the reality is we all have riches we don't recognize every day. So, mm. Wow, yeah. that is so powerful. It gave me chills, honestly. I yeah, thank you, for, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so we are five minutes over. And I don't want to take up yeah. too much of your time. I do have a couple more questions. Just yeah. life ones to wrap up. Um, is that okay? That's fine. Okay. All right. So let's see. When you, let's see. 
when you're looking back on life, what makes you look back and say that you lived a successful life? And like, how does finance play into that? That's a good question. When I, when I look back and say I've lived a successful life, finance plays into it because if we look at, if you look at what I've done over my career, if we think about the people I've served. So when I was working, for example, for large corporations, working on their 401k plans, I wasn't just helping the company set up an investment selection for their employees. The reality was I had to see beyond that and the bigger impact. If employees are paying too much, then you're going to end up in a situation where employees don't have enough to save for retirement as it is, and you're just pulling them down even further with fees. So every time I could help a company make a decision that helped an employee meant that the advice I was giving to the company wasn't impacting the company. It was impacting 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. Mm. And that happened in pension plans. It happens in 401k plans. It happens in foundation endowments. When you're looking at how do you structure an investment portfolio, it's more than just the investments. Every dollar they earn, every dollar they save goes back to what they're passionate about. It goes mm-hmm. back to funding that endowment. It goes back to funding that scholarship. It goes back to serving the needs of the poor and really having that broader line of sight as to what is the true impact of my role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I fast forward, you know, the what I have done in finance has allowed us to start the not-for-profit in Sierra Leone Grow for Hope, mm-hmm. where we're helping women, empower women there in a culturally aware way to run their own small businesses. Mm-hmm. And the only way they can run their small own small businesses is to have some type of financial planning, mm-hmm. to have to be able to set up a bank account, to be able to write a mission and vision statement for those businesses, to be able to understand what they're working for every day. And my experiences throughout my career have led me to being able to do that. So every time one other girl goes to school there, that's the legacy I'm leaving. It has Mm. nothing to do with the legacy I'm leaving in the financial world or specifically with any company. It has everything to do with how can I leave a legacy by positively impacting as many people as I can through my financial Mm. career. Wow. That is so powerful. Yeah. That's amazing. And so do you feel like that perspective has changed? As you've gotten older? I do. It was there, you know, early on in my career, I had advice from a mentor and his advice was to never forget that everything, and it actually goes back to the mistake question. When I made a mistake on a client report, Hmm. his reminder was, yes, it's one client, it's 5,000 employees and Mm. your mistake just impacted 5,000 people. So you need to get out of the way of thinking it's one client, it's just one small mistake and start realizing that each thing you do has an impact on more people than you realize. And that's truly when it started to shift and it's continued to shift over time. I'd say, you know, especially the service to the outside community um, where, like I've said, some days it's easier than others to want to actually just get up and go do something and not be mindless. Mm -hmm. That took longer because it was a process of um, also with our girls, you know, raising them, working through their life stages. So when they're three and four or three and five, I should say, it's hard to find places where we can all serve together. 
So we found small things we could do that it's definitely evolved as they've gotten older and grown up in it. And we've had to slowly navigate our way into those bigger service opportunities as the girls got older. So it, it evolved not only with my career, but with the family itself. Mm. That's so great. Yeah. I love that. So I just, to wrap us up here, how are yeah. you thinking about the future? You know, what is, yeah. what does life look like? I have no idea. This is how I always think about the future. You know, my next stepping stone that I can see is taking the digital platform, Emotomy, and really scaling it for financial advisors to mm. reach as many Americans as possible with affordable and high-quality advice. That's the next phase. Each day, that phase changes slightly. I'd say, you know, what I do know about myself is once a business is up and running, there's likely another opportunity that will come. What I don't know with how fast technology is changing is what that opportunity might look like. Mm. Um, if you ask really long-term as far as do I see myself always being in the financial industry, I would say yes in a way, um, but my heart's truly with serving other people. Mm. And I imagine at some point I'll be called out of what I'm doing now full-time and into working full-time with those in need. What that looks like, I have no idea. What it could look like, I have no idea. But I do know at some point in my life, that is the direction I will likely head. Wow. That's such a powerful perspective. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much. I've learned a ton about life, about finance, about leadership, and about you. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yes. Thank yes. you. Yes, definitely. Um all right. Well, this was awesome. Honestly, this is so good. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Honestly, I, I, I seriously, this is, this is really good. There are so many questions, so many other questions I even wanted to ask. It was so hard to even keep it at an hour. So, um, yeah, you have such an interesting story and yeah, I can't thank you enough, honestly. Yeah, you're welcome. And if you have more questions, we can always get on again. I would love that. Yeah. Okay. I will. I will definitely consider that. Yes. Thanks. All right, Sabrina. Hey, well, best of luck with everything. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not the most you know stress-free times, but you seem like no. someone who's handling it really well. And so, um, yeah, just best of luck with everything. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Mm -hmm. All right, Sabrina. We'll talk yep. Soon. Take care. Yep. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Right. Bye, bye. Bye. And that wraps up this episode of the Grasping Life podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to give it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really goes a long way. And be sure to share it with someone else you think might get value as well. For more information and further episode releases, you can follow the Grasping Life podcast on Instagram. I would love to connect and hear what you think. Thank you. Until next time.